Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. We're trying to take the temperature of this strike. We've got the political, we've got our our prime minister heading to New York, getting a little bit of criticism for being there, uh, taking selfies. But do we need a prime minister here? Is the strike in that kind of a position? We know how these things go. It's not our first rodeo when it comes to strikes. We start to pay attention when it starts to affect our life. We've got the tax deadline in a matter of hours. And then after that, will it matter to Canadians? We've had horn honking and tickets given out, lots of comparisons here. And we're watching to see how this is going to play out politically because do you end the strike? Do you continue with the strike? A lot of it depends on what you and I and the rest of Canada thinks about it. We are joined live this afternoon by Dave Korzynski, Research Director, Angus Reid Institute. Dave, good afternoon. Hi, Arlene. Thanks for having me. All right. Public sentiment changes. And I think when it began, would it be fair to say that uh, Canadians were kind of uh, sympathetic in many ways? Do you have any idea how this is changing right now? Yeah, I think Canadians largely, when we asked just at the outset of this, were pretty sympathetic. And I can use a couple of different data points to show that that is, I think, largely kind of sustaining itself so far. Uh, if you look at the level of support for some of the key items that the union were, are asking for, um, the one that stands out is two-thirds of Canadians supporting the wage premiums for extra time working after 4 o'clock or working uh, overtime. 65% said they supported that and just 27% opposed it. The right to work from home is also quite uh, highly supported at 55%. And you know, Canadians actually look at, I, I think the inflationary environment has something to do with this, but uh, support for 4.5% uh, wage increase over three years for that 13.5% total that was the initial ask from the union, we had 48% of Canadians supporting that and 40% opposing it. So Canadians leaning towards supporting that at the outset. Um now we've got word that the uh, the government has offered 9% and the mm-hmm. unions saying that they have come back off of the 13.5% number, but we can't seem to find out what the, what the number is. Um, so if it's a little bit lower than that, I think you could see public sentiment uh, rise even a little bit more in favor of the union. Um, and there's an interesting number, which doesn't come from our survey, but I, but I found uh, earlier this morning, which is um, whether or not the government should go to the ultimate step, which is that pa- passing back to work legislation. Canadians very divided on that with just so 42% say they agree that the government should step in and force public servants back to work, 39% opposing. So basically, if you take out the people who aren't quite sure on that question, that's a 50-50 split. Um, so it, it is an environment where I don't think this is really affecting people yet. And that's when we might see numbers shifting. But, you know, Hopefully we won't get there. They've got to be able to come to a deal before then, I would hope so. Well, we would because it could shift public opinion here. And we know mm-hmm. just how, how how powerful that is. We had the horn honking this week, and that was something because in people's minds, it, it was the beginning of being annoyed by strikes. But then I, mm-hmm. I, many people said, OK, look, they're getting ticketed and the convoy didn't get ticketed. 
Yeah, and that's, that's an interesting one. You know, it's uh, mm-hmm. it's it's a tough comparison because the, the the convoy I think did not have near the level of sympathy. If we go back to our polling on that, you know, a lot of people maybe we're okay with it for a day or two, but pretty early on, I think we had about 70% of Canadians saying that they, they thought it was time for the, the Freedom Convoy to go home. Um, and if you look at even just what, what that group was, was protesting, there were things that were largely quite popular, you know, vaccine mandates and, and, and those types of policies that had been implemented were actually, particularly in the middle of the pandemic, overwhelmingly popular. Um, and I think most people were kind of doing their part on this. And I, I think that when you make those connections to individuals, that's where I think the, the sympathy is is going to hold for at least a little while for the union because people are in a really tough spot financially themselves. So the messaging that the union is using, given that you know inflation is up 11% since I believe 2021, um, they just want to keep up with that. And that's a pretty palatable argument for a lot of Canadians to look at and say, you know, I can't really argue with that. So maybe they've got to do what they've got to do. Uh, so we'll see. Um, but they are kind of battling that sentiment that we often see in, in the, the public sphere that people tend to think that uh, federal government workers have it a little bit better than they do anyways. So uh, I, I would say there's probably an expiration date on how long the sympathy lasts. I think so. And a lot of it has to do with, uh, you know, whether they start to feel it. We know the tax deadline. What is it? It's um, Monday because it falls on a Sunday. And there are a lot of people wondering if they're going to extend that. And, uh, you know, the head of the tax union, the taxing part of the strikers said this week that he thinks they absolutely have to. But I, it doesn't seem to affect public opinion. You know, that was a really interesting one, too. I think yeah. people, um, once they become a little bit more aware of, of that the deadline is not being moved, but you might not get your tax return back uh, in the same amount of time, that that might strike people as a little bit unfair. You know, if, if, if I can't expect the return back for longer, why don't you just give me a little bit of extra time? Um, we actually asked people if they had uh, if they had done their their taxes and if they were waiting. And it's a pretty good group, you know, even if it's just nine or ten percent, that's still, you know, hundreds of thousands of people across the country um who hadn't done their taxes at that point uh and, and were kind of waiting to see how this was going to play out. So I think that that and the the passport issue, which has has been an issue over the last couple of years, if that's popping up again, that one tends to affect people a lot. And then uh, if we get into you know the the late spring, early summer here, and, and people start traveling, and you've got issues with maybe border services and the different spinoff effects that mm-hmm. this might have, people might tend to notice it a little bit more. But um, I think that our interactions with the federal government are and and workers for it are things that we don't really think about until we think about it. So that's why we need a little bit of time for this to build up, I think, before uh, resentment uh, kind of <laughs> is, is the rule. Because as it stands right now, if you ask the question of, you know, is this a necessary strike? We've got some data on that also online. Um, 50% say that it's necessary, that it has to be done um, and only one in yeah. three disagree, that 33%. Yeah, but so that, as you are... just said, Dave, that could totally change. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Let's see how it goes. Thanks a lot. Yeah, we'll keep an eye on it. 
We have Toronto Sun columnist Lori Goldstein joining us live. Hi, Lori. How are you? I'm doing well, Arlene. Having a good day? Yeah, I am. I want to ask you, because we just went to the phones and asked how the strike is affecting people. We know there's been an offer. We're seeing tickets handed out for honking, this, that, and the other. But you said, and I think you are correct, I'm going to give you full, that nobody really <laughs> nobody really cares yet. Any evidence that that may change, Lori? Well, you know, it, it will happen slowly. I mean, the first thing now will be tax returns. Um, I was surprised. I think we were both surprised that the federal government mm-hmm. announced no extension for um, uh, taxes uh, up to um, Monday. Monday's the deadline because that's going to hurt. That's frankly going to hurt lower income people more. Um, you know, the tax code constantly changes. Uh, most people who are lower income don't have accountants to do it for them. And so they rely on information from, um, uh, you know, uh, Revenue Canada or the Canada Revenue Agency leading up to the deadline. And apparently people are waiting four hours to get a live voice on the phone. So that's not good. So, you know, but it's like, it's like any strike. I think that what is unusual is that 155,000 civil servants could go on strike. And for more than a week, there's been no, for the vast majority of us, there's been no change in our lives. Um, I mean, that's surprising because it raises the issue of, well, what are they all doing, Um, obviously? Um, uh, But, you know, as this goes on, I think what we all hope for is a negotiated settlement. Sounds like the government's made a new offer, and that's good. And um, but, you know, if this thing goes on and on and on, and if if the union becomes more and more militant, right, um, you know, if they start um, picketing outside of that are very important to services to the public. And, you know, you can do that. And then are the workers who are going in, are they going to respect the picket line and all that? So, you know, it, it's like this, it's like how an avalanche starts, you know, with <laughs> like one rock starts rolling down yeah. and you don't notice yeah. it for a while. But if it goes on and on and on, you do. I mean, if, if they start like, like seriously impeding the ports, right, that's a big deal. If they start taking over bridges, <laughs> like well, we saw a small example, you know, yesterday, I think mainly symbolic, but, but, you know, what well, we see what happens like that in, in the, in the so-called freedom convoy, right? You can yeah. cause enormous damage. So, um, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. And, and, you know, hopefully there's a new offer and cooler heads are going to prevail and they don't seem to be enormously far apart on, on wages, which is always the key issue. Um, so, you know, you hope, Heads will rational heads will prevail on both sides, and we'll get a settlement within the next week, and then and then we can all go back to life as normal as it is these days. You got which is not so normal, but we'll take yeah. it. I, I want to ask you. You know, we opened the hour. We took some calls. We also talked to uh, some observers in this, and the deal between the NDP and the Liberals. We have, the, of course, that what did the Conservatives do? We know that they've been trying to rebrand themselves and lure in a union workers, not so much federal union workers, but certainly private sector, yep. and they'll take the federal if they can get them. I guess. Yep. However, you know, we're watching Jugmig Singh. What will be his line in the sand? And there was some speculation in hour one stuff that we've all talked about. Is this perhaps a moment where we're, we will see a deal in the future? This uh, We're not calling it a coalition, 
But this deal between the Liberals and the NDP, are we seeing a flash right here of a sign that it could continue? Because we know that this week there was a lot of conversations about what happens in an election if Pierre Polyev wins, but he doesn't get a whopping majority. Yeah. Are the yeah. Liberals and the NDP in a longer term deal. What do you think? What does your spidey sense it, say? It's it's possible. Um, uh, that, that was talked about for a long time in Ontario politics as well. When there was, you know, years ago there was a, it wasn't a coalition, but there was an agreement to govern between uh, the then Bob Ray and and David Peterson. Uh, Peterson was a Liberal premier, and and um, and Ray who supported. Now that that happened for uh, three years, and and then there was a new election. And um, uh, and that brought in uh, uh, Bob Ray. Now, the, but the idea of does the left unite? Because if you look at the votes, then collectively, if, if you take all the votes of the, of the NDP and add them to the Liberals, then you could get a majority government federally. But that that assumes some things. You see, that assumes that all of those votes are going to go liberal, and that all liberal votes are going to stay if the um, NDP were to link up with them. And I think, in fact, what would happen is that there would be what we call the blue liberals, the more conservative uh, liberals. They would be appalled by having a formal uh, government with the NDP, and they, they might well go conservative. So it's, it's hard to predict those uh, things. Um, you know, the idea, so then we'd, well, then we'd be down to, like, we'd, we'd have or be four major parties instead of three, I suppose. And so the you know the possibility of majority governments would be more frequent, but but it's it's too simplistic to say that if you add the, the NDP and Liberal votes, they get a majority, um, because that's not how people work. People don't work in in blocks. For example, years ago, there was a real competition for votes between the old the previous member of the Reform Party and the NDP. It was about yeah. never mind their ideology, which party would be identified as the party of protest, right? Um, mm-hmm. If the NDP would join the, the Liberals, then they are abandoning their uh, they'd be abandoning their position as the party of protest and the party of conscience. Right? They'd now be in government. Um, so you know the, the landscape can be really um, uh, it's hard to predict those things. But look, we've seen these alliances so far. The one between the NDP and the Liberals, or Trudeau and Singh, whatever frustrations Canadians may have in, have with it or, or support for it, it's worked, you know, for the, for, since they made that deal, there hasn't been a confidence vote. The government hasn't fallen. And this is over a purely political deal that either of them could, could snap at a moment's notice. Now, one, one thing that would be hard would be if, if the Public Service Alliance of Canada strike goes on and on and on mm-hmm. because the NDP... It'll strain back, this one. You know, they're against imposed yeah. settlements, against back-to-work legislation. So then it would become... Now, if, if that were to happen, well, then would the Conservatives support the Liberals in bringing an end to the strike, which they might not want to do? So um, I, I think there's a political advantage for Trudeau in settling the, the Peace Act strike for that reason, among many others. Wouldn't want to test it. And Jagmeet Singh doesn't want to test it as well. No, I mean, this is, no. So we're seeing kind of this, it's a moment, this strike. And it may, you know, Canadians may not be affected at this moment, but politically, Lori, yeah, yeah. the parties have a lot of, a lot at stake here. The rebranding, the conservatives planning to draw more people into their tent. Yep. And how do they go? They don't want to be, they got to keep it on the prime minister. May I also throw in this to you. Was it a good look? Or he's getting some criticism, the Prime Minister being in New York City with Hugh Jackman and all. Selfies, back to selfies. Yeah, I, yeah, no, 
<laughs> our sister paper, the National Post, had a, a good column by John Iverson, and they ran that picture of, of Trudeau. Yeah, uh, um, it was with, good. With, you know, who's a great actor, but I'm not <laughs> sure I, I really want to listen to him on climate change. Um, yeah, no, no uh, I wrote about that um, earlier in the week. Um, I don't think it was a good look. Um, I think that, you know, I understand that, look, the prime minister doesn't have to be in Ottawa to be briefed on what's going on with a national strike and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, to, to, and, and, you know, and they also said, look, he's not just doing this global citizen now thing. He's talking to the Council of Foreign Relations. He's promoting he's promoting, you know, investment in clean energy in Canada, yada, yada, yada. But no, I didn't think it was a good look. I don't think it's a good look when when we have all the problems we have, including a federal uh, strike. For the prime minister to, to be at another one of these, you know, gab fests about saving the planet, which is what, you know, like, OK, this one's called Global Citizen Now. And then there's the World Economic Forum. And then there's the annual meetings of the United Nations uh, Framework Convention on Climate Change, which happens to appear every year in all of the vacation and tourist hotspots in the world. I'm not saying you can never go this to happens, those. Yeah. I understand you have to. Yeah. But I, I, I just don't but, think it, it was a good move. Yeah. Yeah, and as you said at the beginning of the a lot of this, read the room. Credible discovery and admission this week from a former defense minister that he did not read his emails. All right, this just it was a blinking moment for me because, and I'm bringing it up now because we're going to talk about how we're getting people out of Sudan. We know mm-hmm. there was another flight today, and how it kind of conflated with our impressions of what happened in Afghanistan. They weren't impressions. Let's face it. We let a lot of people down. And during that time, such an intensity on the government. And this week, we have the former defense minister admitting or saying, is it an excuse or is it ineptness or clumsiness? I don't know. What kind of a cabinet minister does not read their emails during such a tense time? What did you make of that admission? I think that I think that it was a symptom of what was going on then rather than the cause. Um, you remember that um, the fall of um, Kabul to the Taliban caught everybody way off guard, um, but Canada more than most. Um, other countries were, were able, for example, to, 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 to get credible um, evacuations going uh, faster than Canada. Canada did do evacuations, there's no doubt about that, but they weren't as well done or as efficient or as fast off the mark as you know, a number of other countries. And so this, to me, where the, the, the relevant minister at the time, Harjit Sajjan, says that he, you know, um, this all has to do with authorization letters, authorizing people trying to get out of Afghanistan, including many, mm-hmm. many Af- Af- people from Afghanistan who were allies in the war. Um, and in the post-war period, that they were they were translators, they worked with our our military, and so they would reasonably be people who would be in danger um, when the Taliban took over uh, Kabul. And when, and we all know that efforts to get them out were chaotic. That there was you know that there were um, soldiers who like soldiers who had served in Afghanistan who felt the situation was so desperate they were trying to establish lines of communication and help themselves. Um, and so and so this is this bizarre thing where a Canadian senator. Mary Lou McFredrin, who I believe was well-intentioned, um, got some sort of template from from Sajan's office about these kinds of forms and just started sending out hundreds of them, right? And I guess yeah. what Sajan is saying, well, he never saw that in his email. Well, look, a minister gets a lot of emails, and in a crisis, of course, they're going to be overrun. But what struck me was that 
the, the lack of a process where, because one of his staff members had authorized or had given these things to McFedrin, that there was no there was no other way to know that. Like, well, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't if he's doing that yeah. and his chief of staff or whoever it is is saying, I'm going to do this with McFedrin, whether it's, you know for whatever reason that nobody briefs the minister at any point. Oh, by the way, we're doing this. You know, exactly. It would rely on. I mean, I know it's an easy hit to say to Sajan, you didn't read your email, right? But 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 I think we have to understand that, that when Afghanistan, when Kabul's falling and all hell is breaking loose in Afghanistan, and we've got thousands of people who are begging us to get out, many of whose lives were genuinely endangered because they worked with us, they were our allies. Mm-hmm. In Afghanistan, the fact that he might miss uh, it's just that the idea that that the the warning would be in one email just strikes me as my God, what was going on? I'm with you. And I think all reasonable, all our listeners think back and go, didn't somebody walk down the hall and say, you should check. Have you heard? Exactly. Is that I mean? Come on, we can all relate. I can see missing and someone, would they not? You couldn't do a radio show like that if you missed something. <laughs> you, do, you, you know, somebody's texting you in your ear and go, you know what? Or you're texting them going, the microphone's on fire. Like, come on. Yeah, to me, and it's, it's just it's, a symbol. Yeah. Like, I don't think people were motivated yeah. by ill intention here. I think they were in the middle of a crisis. And so, and when you don't have, A, it's a crisis. B, you don't have a... A, a competent communication system, stuff falls through the cracks. And this was a major, a major crack. I mean, everybody was trying to get people out. I get that. That, that was the motivation of yeah. the senator. That was the motivation of the government, however well or not they, they, they did it. But, but just like, like it, 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 it's really like, you know, what if there's something where it's an, an immediate and imminent threat to Canadians and this sort of stuff were to go on? Like my God, <laughs> the process, and yeah, you go wow in a in a a short order cook would act more quickly or be told, hey, you know, you're missing meals and the orders are going. I don't know what the analogy yeah, yeah. is. No, there. Or, I, or I do like, want to ask you. Yeah, go ahead. No, I just like you know thinking in, in what is something like okay, there's a major mm-hmm. natural disaster in some part of the country, right? And they're trying to organize mm-hmm. help, right? And 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 a system like this, where where basic communication is falling apart, and and people aren't knowing things they should know, um, you know, that to me is is the that's the sort of warning when you look at this and you go, okay, yeah, you know, the minister didn't do his thing, that was stupid, but but what does that indicate about the lines of communication in the government when there's an emergency? Because emergencies aren't just necessarily foreign; they can be domestic as well. You know, like. Like, you know, in 911, what if you had communication like this? My God, what would have happened? Tucker Carlson fired from Fox out of the blue on the heels of a precedent setting case by Dominion voting. We know they had Smartmatic on their heels. They haven't dealt with that and they want way more than Dominion voting. Everyone was wondering, how is this going to change? Will Fox change? And then to fire their person, the lucrative chair, the high ratings that seem to define Fox News. Don Lemon, hours later, it was not synchronized. Don, not really a surprise to me, but Tucker Carlson, we wondered if they changed their tone. We didn't know the axe would come down. And what happens next? 
matters. It matters to politics. It matters to America. The whole world is watching this, and Canadian eyes, you bet, are fast and hard on this story. Joining us is a former Fox host of Political Insiders, a political analyst, and a former congressman, John LeBoutlier. John, good afternoon. Arlene, good afternoon to you. You couldn't have said it better, because I've just come out of a lunch (laughs) here in New York, and all the people at lunch we're talking about was Tucker Carlson. Why did he get fired? What's the truth? What's the theory? You know, the whole thing. It is, that's five days ago, and they're still talking about it. It is. It's just about everywhere, and it's important. How much of a bomb did it blow up, John? You know, it is kind of settled science, let's put it that way, that Fox did not eat their own. They Well, they let go of O'Reilly, but it seemed that Tucker was pretty safe, and they paid off Dominion voting, and we heard and saw all those texts about what Tucker really thought about stuff, including the former President Trump, and thought it was damaging. And then this, John, it really, really has perhaps changed. Or let me pick another word I'm going to ask you. This is a test, isn't it? Well, it's that. And I think the analogy of a bomb is a good one, because I think when a bomb goes off, then there are ripples that emulate out from Mm -hmm. the center of the bomb. Mm -hmm. And we don't know yet all the the ripples uh, that are going to come from this. We don't know internally if Fox is going to change their decisions in management to tolerate some of the things that they've been allowing to go on on the air. That is the reason they got sued, of course, was out and out knowingly lying about Dominion and Smartmatic. So they know this case is coming up uh, and that if they don't change the same evidence, the same things, at least now they can say, yeah, well, uh, to Smartmatic when they get to that case in court, if they ever get there, we've made changes. We have gotten rid of the main perpetrator. And, you know, that's maybe part of the equation. I don't, we, I don't think we know. We're all speculating. And that's what they were doing at lunch today. And it's in the press every day. What really went on to cause them to jettison, as you put it, their lead guy? It's true. And then and, and what happens next is is what's important. Has the media landscape changed where you don't need the big network? We had Tucker Carlson putting out a video. To me, he looked very small. He looked very different. And it didn't make sense, really. He just put out a statement, almost like he was testing, saying, are you with me? And trying to say almost the opposite of all the rumors we were hearing, uh, reports and unconfirmed reports about why he was let go. And we don't know. But it is, as I say as well, a a test, John. Um, O'Reilly didn't survive it. He's not on the same scale. Some believe that Tucker, I mean, there's rumors and reports that Newsmax and One America are doing everything they can to pull him over. And the ratings were down for three days on Fox, really quite dramatically. Right. As was the stock price and, and every, every every aspect of it. Now, you know, we, we're going to see, but Newsmax uh, allegedly is considering offering him a hell of a deal. I don't know about the compensation, but he would have say in the programming of other shows on Newsmax leading in and following his nighttime show. 
uh, and it's not, I don't think it's one American nation, it's News Nation, which is a different one. They are reported to be interested in him, too. So that that's you're right, that never happened with O'Reilly. No one ever made a serious offer to O'Reilly after he got fired, part of which was he was getting boycotted by um, advertisers because of what he had done with women. <laughs> Here, it's a different thing. I, I, you know. Yeah, but there's reporting, too, that the advertisers stayed away from Tucker. They said he had big ratings, but they didn't make big bucks on it because of exactly what you're saying. That's why I don't think it's going to be as easy for him to get another TV gig. I I think if you're a TV network and you're thinking of hiring him, you know, there are factors, how much you got to pay him and how much is the downside of potential boycotts and controversies that he may bring up by the things he has said on the air. And so I don't know. It's too early to tell, uh, but he should not be underestimated. And as you say, the world's changed. Too. This podcasting is way bigger. Uh, I think O'Reilly went out in 2016, I think. And this is what, seven years later, podcasting is way bigger. And a guy with a built-in name like this might be able to land on his feet and do a, a podcast and make money off of it. It is. You know, it used to be when these things happen, when people change their ways or said, you know, what did it lead to? That may not be the case here. So that's kind of, it's a test of the morals of the media, John. Would you agree? Well, there aren't any. Uh, <laughs> I hate to say it. I just, I don't think I don't. I, I think it's Rupert Murdoch said it best. It's not a matter of red or blue. It's a matter of green. And who makes money? And what do you got to do to make money? Sad thing to me is having been at Fox and yeah. seeing the hold Fox has on its viewership. They didn't need to go down this road of white nationalism and radical stuff and saying that. Uh, immigrants are dirty and all the stuff that Tucker got into trouble for. He, he was getting great ratings without saying that stuff. Fox wins every hour of every day of every week, every year for the last 20 years. Yeah. No matter who's hosting, they win yeah, but, every hour. They but, have a built-in they... audience. Sudan, if we're watching this, and it ties into so many other themes that we're hearing about, brings back a lot of memories of Afghanistan and the trouble and the cumbersome way that we were getting people who helped us in Afghanistan. It was such a a really poignant moment. And I I know, and I tell this story a lot, I mean, there were people who were just on their own, who had worked there as reporters or diplomats or whatever. They were doing everything they could to get people out because we'd made that promise to them. And then when we watched Sudan, a different kind of a thing, as I asked at the beginning of the show, do you expect, if you're in a dangerous place, do we have to get people out? And then there is the other aspect. Sudanese Canadians watching this, calling relatives. One told me this week, calling his family left a, in Sudan and on the telephone hearing the war in the background, the civil war and the explosions. So it all, you know, our military, our response, so many things tying into this. We're going to explore all of it with our next guest. He is David Perry, 
from the Canadian Institute of Global Affairs. David, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us. Great to talk to you. It is kind of a conflation of so many stories. There has been concern about our spending, our defense spending. Then, of course, we had the the leak of the prime minister getting real about NATO. And now we're watching even more of our military, I'll say, might or our ability as we see what is happening with Sudan. So many different aspects of this. David, first of all, what are we seeing? We know that the flights have resumed and they seem to be going ahead with Sudan. But for many who are watching it, it was a bit of a stumble. How are you viewing it? Uh, Well, I guess I'd have a slightly different take um, in that uh, getting people out of Conflict zones like that, especially ones that flare up uh, towards the end relatively quickly, as opposed to, say, looking at the the kind of chaotic exit from Kabul, which had a long um, – had a kind of a long planning period because the Americans there had given months of indication when they were going to leave, and it was you know kind of predictable some of what happened in the security situation. What's unfolded in Sudan's um, sprung up with less advanced notice, and there's very few countries uh, in the world that have an ability to go in and be able to essentially secure landing facilities, secure an airfield. Uh, so getting Canadians or, or other country nationals out of situations like that is pretty tough to do quickly. Um, and I do think does demonstrate um, our close reliance on working relationships with other countries, the United States in particular, uh, and also part of the limits of, of what a military that's roughly the size of ours is able to do, um, because we uh, have fewer people with fewer dedicated specialized training Um you know, and incidentally, we're not alone in that because there's not all that many other countries that can do it by themselves. But um, our ability to go into a situation like that is fairly limited, and it's reliant on working with lots of other people. So for those who are comparing it to the agony of Afghanistan, if I may may do that, you're saying they're two different situations? I do think they're, yeah, they're two different situations in a couple of senses. One, in the Afghan situation, there was a lot more planning time to at least have contingencies in place for the date that the Americans were, were pulling out, which wasn't present in Sudan. And I think the other huge difference is that um, unless I'm unaware of obligations or commitments that have been extended in Afghanistan, Canada had employed huge swaths of Afghans to work for us that were going to be put in very precarious situations in the event the Taliban came back to power. Uh, and that dynamic's not present in um, Sudan, at least that I'm aware of. The the events and the scrutiny, may I say, on our national defense spending is not new, but there is an intensity. I mean, some of the some of the warnings that are being issued from former military officers, also from former defense politicians, are ratcheted up a little bit. That and of course the conflict in Ukraine is part of that. The, the seriousness of our NATO contributions. Where are we now, David? Would you agree? I mean, we've talked about this as a country, and this has been debated for some time. But at this moment, it's being seen that it's becoming a little more critical. It is, because the environment has changed around us, and we've now got the largest land war in Europe since the end of the Second World War. Uh, So I think that makes things much more tangible in one sense, because you're seeing in real life terms and and life and death terms, um, 
the impact of having military forces and the ability to to do, provide defense um, either to yourself or to make contributions to another country, Ukraine trying to defend itself. Uh, and so you're seeing a, in real time the manifestation of what you do or don't have in your military inventory in a much more relatable way. Uh, and the other piece of that is that it's driving some uh, conversations with allies that are looking forward, driven in part by Ukraine, about what the NATO alliance should be looking at into the future in terms of how much uh, all of the allies contribute to defense. And I think the third component to it is that our military is facing um, a, a number of pretty significant uh, difficulties that tie into its personnel situation. Uh, and a bunch of things have come together to leave the military many thousands of troops short of uh, the numbers that they're supposed to have. And that limits what they can do operationally in terms of whether or not, as an example, um, we would have the people if a government wants uh, to make a um, would like to make a significant military contribution to a, some kind of operation in Haiti. Um, our chief of defense staff has basically said that we couldn't do that without um, having to make a choice to stop doing something else. And so those things, I think, have all kind of knit together to, to create the current discussion environment. Yeah, they have. And let's stick with that just for a minute and use that as an example of procurement. We've been hearing about the challenges there for some time. But as you say, at this moment, it creates another kind of a barrier. What do, in your opinion, we need to do to fix the procurement problem? How do we get more people in the military? So, you know, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, one would be deciding whether or not as a country we're really serious about it or not. And I think it's tough to find a lot of evidence that we are. Um, and if you're not serious about something and if you don't make it a priority, then you shouldn't expect the results to be stellar. Um, this government hasn't had as much focus on defense as some other ones have. Although, to be uh, fair to them, they have they have earmarked tens of billions of additional dollars to the armed forces for future investment. Um, so they've been uh, pretty supportive and financially in terms of, of what we're doing on defense. But I don't think that the files have been a core priority of government. And it's difficult for governments to focus on a whole bunch of issues all at once. If you've got uh, a public administration system, which we do, which requires most of the decisions of consequence to be pushed really high up the organizational charts to the senior leadership uh, of the government. You, you can't do a whole lot of things at the same time. And we haven't had as much focus on defense um, as we would need to have if we really wanted to be doing meaningfully better at uh, procurement, at recruiting, and a whole bunch of other things. You know, you've kind of hit it, and I wanted to go there as well. You know, I'm covering the story, certainly in my career, over and over again. And then we reach this moment, and then we're getting quotes. I mean, Andrew Leslie said on the show uh, recently that this was a moment of crisis, one of the most dangerous moments since the Second World War. And then, as you say, you have to ask, this is a conversation we've been having as a country. And to me, I know politicians do quite often what they think will get them votes. And I turn it back to the Canadian public. Are Canadians engaged in this? And if not, is it up to the government to explain or is it up? How do we do that? So I think Canadians uh, have actually shown an, an indication in some of the uh, polling that I've seen um, 
they have indicated that they do care about these issues uh, and they are supportive of Canada taking a stronger position with things like military spending. Um, even when asked uh, if they would do that and it would require, you know, the t- kinds of tough choices that our prime ministers talked about w- that would need to be made to, to spend more money on defense, either not doing something else or asking the government um, to ask citizens to, to contribute more in terms of, of taxes. So I think that there's a level of support that we tend to sometimes dismiss from the actual public for these kinds of things. And that happens in a vacuum almost because we don't, to go back to what I was saying, have a whole lot of um, – issue leadership on the part of of senior officials and politicians in this country to actually try and advocate for why we would want to do things like this in the way that we do have tons of issue advocacy on the part of government officials about things like um, climate change reduction measures. And so you're having a bit of a conversation where we're trying to gauge how the public thinks about something that it isn't um, very often told is important for them to think about themselves. And even despite then, you get reasonably strong levels of support for Canada playing a strong role in the world. If we don't do something about it, where are the leaky points here? We had Chinese balloons. We had America having to jump in. We've got Russia doing flybys over the Arctic. And we so we, we have election interference worries. We have China, Russia, and also concerns about Iran. In this immediate moment, is how much of a how much of a threat is this to our security in your opinion? I think it's a pretty consequential one. I mean, you certainly hit the highlights there. There's lots of things to be aware of. I guess to me, the big takeaway uh, from Russia's invasion in Ukraine is that to talk about, you know, the kind of the language we use now to talk about we're into an era, again, of great power competition, which we'd sort of been out of for 20 or 30 years when the Cold War ended, that there are a couple of uh, large military and economic powers the degree to which um, they're either one of those things varies, but Russia and China, which are unhappy with the Western-led set of systems that Canada has massively benefited from since they were put into place after the Second World War, uh, and they're pushing in different ways to change that. So in the Russian case, by uh, literally trying to redraw some of the, the borders on European maps um, and retake territory, as well as interfering in elections and doing some other things uh, in a way that um, the regime in the Kremlin thinks advances uh, certainly there, if not the wider Russian set of interests. And on China's part, uh, pushing pushing the boundaries to try and redraw lines on the map in the South China Sea, engaging in uh, different types of foreign interference and and um, trying to shape decisions in other Western countries through um, a bunch of ways of influencing people in the business community and political communities um, that are a little bit harder to, to track, but they basically want to reshape uh, reshape the way the world operates right now to benefit them. Um, and for a country like Canada, which has benefited massively by the status quo that's existed since the end of the Second World War, uh, that's a concern. And I would, again, to go back to what Russia did in Ukraine, which is nonsensical from a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of viewpoints coming from a Canadian outlook. Um, I think we need to be uh, we need to be a little bit humble about what we can be confident that we know about what other countries that are unhappy with the way things work will and won't be prepared to do. And it also takes us back to our allies and how they feel about us. And that certainly seems to be growing that perhaps NATO can't rely on 
our country in the way that our country wants to be known around the world. We're quite chuffed with ourselves as being peacekeepers, but you can't do that. As we've just talked about at the beginning of this, if you have a problem with procurement and you don't even have the military might, and there's been lots of rumbling that perhaps Canada is losing the confidence of the allies. Would you agree? I do think uh, having the opportunity to sit in Ottawa and interact with people from other diplomatic uh, establishments in the capital, that you increasingly hear more pointed language from Canada's allies about Mm -hmm. Canada's actual contributions, not what we say we're going to do, but what we actually do in practice and the divergence between commitments to, you know, as an example, really re-engage in UN peacekeeping and then only do it for 13 months and then go back to having four or five dozen uh, troops on UN missions. Um, I think a lot of that is starting to coalesce into a more pointed set of frustration with Canada's actual practice not living up to our rhetoric. And we're seeing that um, manifest in a couple different ways. I think, you know, as an example, the AUKUS agreement between the United States, Britain, and Australia, which is in part about buying nuclear submarines, but is also about um, a high technology partnership between three close allies that treat defense and security very seriously. We're seeing um, increasingly that our our longstanding allies um, aren't simply interested in having Canada show up for a meeting anymore. they're interested in having us make some meaningful contributions and they're not seeing our contributions in reality live up to the ones that we make rhetorically. Right. Finally, I want to ask you, what would you do? You know, as we talk about all the, uh, um, the weak points of this. What do you think could change it, David? I think the single biggest thing uh, is to try and make it uh, increase its importance amongst the, you know, the whole range of different things the government's trying to do. But if you don't make this a priority, then you shouldn't be all that surprised if the results uh, aren't what they would be if it were. And I think, you know, we've seen over several years that these kinds of issues just simply don't get enough time and attention compared to other things that governments are more occupied with. Uh, And if you don't put the time and effort in, then, you know, we shouldn't be all that shocked that the results aren't uh, what they could be otherwise. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.